Good evening and welcome to tonight's broadcast. We're three for three, three nights, three days, three nights in a row, three shows in a row. What do you know? Hey, hey, ho, ho. It's great. It's great. I love it when this happens, when this all lines up. Um, we're going to talk tonight about a band that I've spoken about a few times on the channel, but not uh, we've never really dived deep into who they are and what they are all about. And like most things here at the Frumis channel or whatever, when we do these shows, I try my best to sort of, or the way that I connect with something is through my own personal experience or my own personal POV. And so for me, the year was, I believe the year was, it was the summer of 2008. Okay. It was about 15 years ago. And um, I was, I remember, this is what I remember feeling. I remember feeling at the time, like, I don't know, just like I was looking for something new musically. And I was thinking about like the state of music of like rock and roll of alternative music. And I know this sounds so fucking crazy in the year, in the year 2023, this sounds ridiculous, but like in the year 2000, I was like, man, like rock and roll doesn't exist anymore. Like what is there that's new? Is there anything going on? Blah, blah, like just all this like goofy, these, these goofy feelings that just personal reflections, right? You know, just like sort of like looking, you know, record stores, like retail, like corporate retail record stores were just about to begin their decline. And, you know, pop, like what's interesting is like pop rock sort of pop rock existed in the 90s, obviously, and it continued through the aughts. But then it slowly it sort of evolved. I would say you don't really see. Too many, you know, guitar-based, drum-driven bands today putting out music in, like, the... I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I'm just saying, like... I'm just saying, like, things really seemed like they were declining to me. I don't know. And then I, I was on YouTube, and I don't know how I stumbled. I stumbled upon these guys on YouTube. And, you know, instead of just talking about what i saw and we've like i said we have we have watched this show in the past this was my introduction to the mummies and they just i saw this and it took my breath away i was like oh so this is like this is what's going on or this is what was going on and the thing was i didn't know when this was from I didn't know what year this was from there. This was, uh, this was not the same video. Somebody, this was a re up. This is the full show re uploaded. Uh, what I watched was just a clip and it was these guys and they're dressed like mummies. And I thought to myself and I said, wow, you know, I, I had these like sophomoric. That's what I was feeling. I was feeling sophomoric and you know, I was just like, I, I suddenly I'm like, wow, just when I thought that I've explored, you know, all there is to explore musically that maybe is interesting on some level. I just I came across these guys and yeah, 
you know, when I reflect back on thinking that way, I feel kind of foolish because like, I think about all the music that I just continue to discover. Like, how could I have thought that at the age of, I think I was my early twenties, I was 22 years old. How could I have thought that I just like had listened, that I had found, ran the gambit and like, that there was nothing fresh and new anymore. Ironically, this wasn't fresh or new either because the mummies were around from the late eighties through the early nineties and had broken up. They had broken up when I discovered them on YouTube because my next immediate, you know, my next immediate like reaction was to go and find out when they were going to tour through New York. And I found a website and the irony was, and it makes a lot of sense when you know who the mummies are and like their sort of <laughs> their whole deal. Um, they decided to reunite, but they were reuniting for something called the Dracula. It's like this Dracula festival in Spain. Now here's the thing about that too. So the mummies were the beginnings of discovering this whole branch of garage rock. So if humans, all right, so how about this? If human beings evolved from chimpanzees, whatever primates, right. But then like, you know, primates are still around, you know, uh, in parallel with, humans that have evolved from those primitive <laughs> those primitive primates um that's what garage rock is garage rock is it's changed a little bit but it's pretty much this kind of unchanged aesthetic that goes all the way back to the 60s it's counterculture uh it is punk it is punk before there was punk as Iggy, that whole thing that whole trip with Iggy Pop and MC5 and the Velvet Underground and the New York Dolls, as that is all going on, simultaneously you have bands like the Sonics, right? You have bands like the Sonics and the Seeds. This is a great song. Hold on, we got to play this. So that's actually a cover song by a band called The Pleasure Seekers, and the song is called What a Way to Die. And it's from the 60s or the early 70s. So you had this whole garage thing that was happening right alongside. There are tons of bands, countless bands. I know a mere fraction of them, you know, and that sort of continued unfettered in its own way, this way and that way, all the way through. And obviously some of the later garage rock as garage rock runs parallel with everything else, you know, uh, and the music tree and things branch off and you have, you know, you have, you have, punk becoming hardcore becoming you know grunge becoming pop punk you have garage rock just being garage rock on the side and obviously as like punk rock develops the two go hand in hand and garage rock gets 
you know, almost like edgier, crustier, um, fuzzier. How about because of that, because of that punk rock stuff. And then you wind up with stuff like the mummies. I would say that the mummy, you have the mummies and like Billy childish. And he has a band called the head coach. Every band in these garage, in this whole garage rock scene, they have, they call themselves the, but the is spelled T H E E V the head coats, the milkshakes, the mighty Caesars. The mummies, however, are just the mummies. Yes, that's right. Crazy white boy. It's crazy that we have gone live three nights in a row. I'm, I'm, I, this was like, it's like pandemic times. It's great. I'm very, very happy. I'm very, very happy about this. And I love that so many people are down with the mummies. Um, I remember finding the Death from Unga Bunga album. And why am I not listening to this right now? So Death Death from Unga Bunga is actually like, it's like a joke from like kindergarten. You know, or it's like, you know, it's kind of a savage joke now. Or I don't know how you would describe it. It's not a very sensitive joke, whatever. It's, I, I just want to preface it, preface that before I kind of explain the joke. The joke is, you know, uh, some, some explorers are, are captured by some chieftains, some, tri some tribal men of some kind somewhere. And um, they say, you have a choice. There's a, a bunch of varieties of the joke, but the, what the, what this one is, this is where death from Ungabunga comes from. Um, he says something along the lines of you can choose the chief goes, you have a choice. You can either have uh Ungabunga or death. And he goes, well, what's Ungabunga? And Ungabunga is always a variety of things. It's always something really unsavory or something that might not be traditionally comfortable or whatever, you know, um, traditionally it's kind of, I don't even know. I don't know how to d delve into this further, but, uh, suffice to say that Ungabunga is something that, you know, culturally at that time would be considered to be undesirable. And so the, the first guy, he gets Ungabunga, you know, he chooses Ungabunga because he doesn't want to die and, and he walks off. But we see that Ungabunga is this really sort of haggard practice. And then the second guy goes, uh, I don't want Ungabunga. I will choose death. And so then the chieftain says, Death by Ungabunga. That's the joke. That's what. So they are. They are. Um, uh, they have a CD called Death Death by Ungabunga, which is pretty great. And I'm I'm sorry that you had the worst two weeks of your life, and I'm glad that this can be a distraction for you. Please enjoy. Um, so you have these guys. So you have this scene. It's really in the West Coast, right? Like, kind of, well, that's not true. It's all over. In fact. So I had, I had, um, hmm. Oh yeah. This is a good point. Thank you. Weird beatnik. Good point. Good point. So the term garage rock really does come into view with a very famous iconic compilation. And I don't believe it was in the seventies. It was the nuggets came out in, in the late sixties, 69, a lot of, um, sort of either proto punk bands or, Bands like you have like uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but you have like the Chocolate Watch Band. Uh, uh, I had too much to dream last night. You have uh, the Seeds. You're pushing too hard. You have you have all these bands that appear on this out compilation. The Ambroid Dukes, 
they appear in this compilation called Nuggets. Yeah, right. And Nuggets is really sort of it's it's compiled by Lenny K of the Patty Smith Group. And okay, uh, 1973. Um, yes, that is what I was referring to. Yes, that is what Unga Bunga in the joke. Unga Bunga is uh, is sodomy. That's what it is. And you know, culturally at that time, you know, uh, sodomy was considered. You know, you know how people were in the 90s and whatever in the 80s and homophobic and this, that, and the other. So the idea is, I would rather choose death over that. And then they say death by that. That's the joke. That's the that's the point of the joke. So that's what th that's what's being referenced in death by Ungabunga. But you know, juvenile. Um, Nuggets. Let me see when Nuggets came out. Particularly Nuggets compilation. Now we got to check. Uh, so okay, yeah. So it came out in seventy two. I was off. It was from the label Electra uh, and Sire. Both put it out. And it was compiled and produced by Lenny K of the Patty Smith Band. And they did four or five volumes of Nuggets. There's a lot of Nuggets. There's like Son of Nuggets. Like it's a whole franchise. And they just kept doing it. They just kept doing Nuggets. Um, and then, yeah, from that, then all of a sudden there's this sort of understanding of like what Garage Rock is. And then from Garage Rock... You know, when the mummies come around, I don't know if I'm doing a great explanation of explaining the mummies history here, but like this is kind of me, just, um, you know, me, I speak off the top of the domes. This is me trying that. So then what happens is you have the mummies, they come around. I don't know if the mummies coined the term, but out of garage rock, you get this aesthetic called budget rock, which is sort of like a more modern, at least modern by that standpoint in the 90s. It's a more of a modern interpretation of what garage rock is, right? And then there are some, there are tenants. You have tenants, and I'm going to read them to you right now. That I don't know if these are like really strict rules per se, but like they are, you know, uh, they are factors that make, that make budget rock what it is. So budget rock refers to a musical genre. Um, this is what chat GPT pulled up. Budget rock refers to a musical genre scene and DIY do-it-yourself approach to making and promoting music and emerged in the 1980s and is closely associated with garage rock, punk rock, and a lo-fi aesthetic. Budget rock emphasizes a raw, unpolished sound that often involves bands producing their own music with minimal financial resources. The term budget rock reflects the idea that music can be created and enjoyed without the need for large budgets or major label support. Bands with the within the budget rock scene often prioritize creativity. I think this is a key one. Authenticity is huge. Authenticity and a rebellious spirit over commercial success and or uh, polished production value. So, you know, particularly with a band like The Mummies, you have like it's like a badge of honor to the 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 cheaper and shittier and more degraded your the aesthetic of your sound and the fidelity of which you record the more honorable you are 
within this sort of budget budget rock mentality. Here are some characteristics of budget rock. You have the lo-fi sound. So uh, budget rock bands intentionally embrace the lo-fi sound, right? Uh, which can include recording on inexpensive equipment, uh, using vintage gear. So a lot of these bands, including the Mummies, they have gear, they have guitars and things from like the 60s, you know, um, and deliberately uh, avoid overproducing their sound. Um, so that's super important. And then you have like the do-it-yourself ethos. So the bands, these bands within the budget rock scene often handle many aspects of their music themselves from recording and producing to booking their own shows and creating their own artwork. However, I would say that the DIY ethos is not unique to budget rock, obviously. I mean, that's a punk rock thing too. That's a, anybody, any band starting out that doesn't have support does these things. So DIY is inherent to wanting to be in a band. And I feel like, I feel like it's not something that really, that you can really uh, give ownership to in, in regards to budget rock. Um, budget rock has garage and punk influences. The music draws heavily from both garage rock and punk rock featuring an energetic and often, I think the key word with, with budget as, as is with garage, it's this word primitive. You hear that a lot primitive. When we think about Iggy pop too, we think about primitive, primitive blues, right? Fuzz, you know? Um, Link Ray, ra ra uh, Rumble, you know, the Sonics, the Sonics dangling a single microphone over the drum kit to get that, that sound. I mean, that's what everybody obsesses over the, or in, in this sort of, in this sort of scene, then you have like the minimalist aspect, um, where musicians within the scene, they sort of focus on the essentials of music making, emphasizing songwriting and performance rather than arrangements. And I would say to an extent, not all bands, but the Mummies particularly, a huge portion, I don't know what exactly, but a huge portion of the music that the Mummies play are not their own songs. They cover songs. Skinny Mini, um, uh, The Fly, uh, Ballad of Ironized Cody. Uh, I think they wrote Food, Sickles, and Girls. Uh, I know they wrote You Must Fight to Live on Planet of the Apes. I'm pretty sure they wrote that. Um, trying to think what else uh, that they would cover. What a Way to Die is is not theirs. They uh, Uncontrollable Urge by Devo. They they cover as well. So you know they they sort of they really kind of mix mix it up. But you know it's it's your standard fare. But what's interesting is. You know, you have guitar, bass, and drums, but there's also, you know, not in not in every band, but there are certain bands that also have a organ player. Um, Weird Beatnik says that that the Mummies were kind of a link between the Cramps and the Misfits. I would disagree wholeheartedly. I don't think, apart from dressing like like Mummies, I really don't. There's really no, and apart from I guess maybe playing sloppy and like the DIY thing, those. Those things do not inherently link them to the misfits for me. Um, I I really don't I don't see that connection. I they are far more connected related to the cramps, in my opinion, than they would be the misfits. But I do I appreciate what you're saying, 
Crazy White Boy said, I was introduced to the mummies on the show a few months ago. I'm always learning more. It's great. Okay, so you learned about the mummies from here. That's great. Um, independent labels. Again, this is not unique to even punk rock. Every band has an independent label, okay? Budget rock bands often release their music on small independent labels that align with the, D align with the DIY ethos. And then underground culture. Again, so everybody everybody has everybody's a part of some kind of underground culture so i wouldn't say that's unique to budget rock either so really it's it's the loaf i would say that what really makes budget rock have an identity or gives it its identity more than any of those other things combined is the lo-fi sound on crude equipment um you know outdated formats like for instance it was a big deal when the mummies finally put their music on CD. And just recently, they finally, finally put their music on Spotify. Crazy. Absolutely insane. Um, Budget Rock has contributed to the diversity of the musical landscape by providing an alternative to mainstream, highly polished musical production. It celebrates the idea that anybody with a passion for music can create and share their art without being hindered by the financial limitations or traditional industry constraints. Let me add one thing further. The thing that I admire about the mummies, the thing that I admire about Budget Rock and why I'm fascinated by this stuff, because yes, it, it does go hand in hand with the DIY ethos. I could take my daughter's little toy Casio piano and learn how to play it and then go and speak into a tiny toy tinny speaker and create this, you know, like this really cool kind of, you know, a sound kind of like, I don't know what. That is uh, quite possibly one of the worst renditions of the ballad of Iron Eyes Cody that I've heard. But that's uh, at some point we're going to have to do a, a Jay Reatard episode. And I'm very excited. We're going to have to talk about Jay and why he is so special. Um, also part of this whole thing. So then what happens eventually, you know, after the mummies, like in the 90s, you have bands like like uh, the Devil Dogs and New Bomb Turks, Eric Davidson, who I had on my show. Shout out to Eric. I had him on Pizza Punk, one of the earliest episodes of Pizza Punk. He wrote a book, and I forgot the name of the book. I'm sorry, Eric. He wrote a book that details the entire history of like the modern garage, like budget rock, garage rock scene. Um, that's it starts in like '88, but it, you know, it talks about like bands like the Space Shits. And that eventually gave way to King Kong and the Barbecue Show. Uh, you may know King Kong and the Barbecue Show because their song, I think it's Love You So, is very hot on TikTok right now. It's got millions and millions and millions of views or of plays. The ooh, 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 uh, now listen, darling. I'm sorry, I'm butchering it. Um, another band that I love, but all these guys, all of these guys know each other. And, you know, uh, eventually, you know, this gave way to stuff like, you know, all this stuff that's happening on the West coast. You had burger records that came along and burger records, um, imploded in, in 2020 from a me too scandal, but you had bands like, I mean, you have all these bands, you have no bunny 
who I've talked about several times on here. You have Hunks and his punks. You have Shannon and the clams. You have uh, the uh, uh, Oinkmonics. You have the OCs. You have the Frights. You have Fiddler. You have Mean Jeans. You have Tijuana Panthers. They're all like, you know, the, the, they're all kind of like in the same scene. They don't all sound exactly the same, but they all kind of come from that that side of the world and and then the garden they came up to although the garden is kind of separate from that um and now they're on their side to epitaph the point being is that like it's like this whole other branch of music and it's really kind of all situated on the west coast yes you have like cleveland you have cleveland ohio which is where the new bomb turks are from you have like that's there's stuff that was happening in the midwest and then you did have stuff on the east coast in fact, I, there's probably stuff all over that I'm not mentioning. Um, I, it's not, this is not, this is not a subject I'm entirely well versed on, but um, it's what the thing that I love, the thing that I love about bands like this and bands like the mummies is just this idea that like, A, the, you, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it on any kind of instrument. It doesn't have, you don't have to have, the latest gear. You don't have to go in a professional studio. You just go into your, you go into your garage with a four, four track. You figure out how to record and you record really crude recordings. And then the other thing going hand in hand with that budget mentality is again, the notion of authenticity. What I'm doing is authentic and genuine from my heart. And uh, it's wild and it's raw and it's me. And um, and the point, the, 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 the point of pride that comes with that. Um, so before we dive into our main course, we should talk about riot stickers real quick because they are the sponsor of this channel, riot stickers. You can't go wrong with riot stickers, get a thousand stickers for $79. They are the official sponsor of the promise channel, as well as the genre blast film festival, which I will be at this weekend in Winchester, Virginia. If you're near Winchester, Virginia, come say hello at the Alamo Draft House. That is where I shall be looking, lurking. So in the comments, you can pick up Riot Stickers. A thousand stickers for $79. You're not going to find a better deal than that. They print on everything because they're Riot Stickers and they are the bomb. And you really can't go wrong with them. Let's listen to the guy from Less Than Jake. Sing the song uh, and then we will continue on with the show. Okay, and we are back. And before I continue, before I continue my uh, uh, our little delve into 
the mummies uh, a few housekeeping items number one i need your skulls i want your skulls i need your skulls please leave your skulls if you're enjoying this video if you're enjoying learning about the mummies please leave me your skulls in the live chat please leave a comment under this video with your skull i want to add it to my collection Please like this video. Please subscribe to the channel. Do all those things. Give me your skulls. Subscribe to my channel and leave a comment in the comments, okay? Uh, secondly, the t-shirt contest is closed. I am tallying up all uh, and sorting through all of the data in the email. If you want a t-shirt, you will be hearing from me when I get back from the Genre Blast Film Festival. Okay, I'm going down there uh, tomorrow night. Uh, I will be going, heading down, driving down there. Um, looking forward to it. It's going to be a really fun road trip. Okay. And lastly, like I said, John Christ, John Christ interview. We recorded that back in May. It's coming. It really is coming. Uh, I've been so busy trying to get my film Gouge Away uh, released on our brand new imprint label. That's right. From us is now a Blu-ray label and we will be releasing our very first release very soon. It's called gouge away. And I hope all of you will purchase a copy. Um, it is the very first pressing of the very first release. I got three releases lined up and they'll all be just kind of rolling out, including my first film, Romeo's distress uh, and some other stuff as well. Okay. So keep all that in mind. Um, if you're going to the, the John Christ stuff that'll drop on Patreon, along with more secret shows, all that stuff, boy, it, it's the, there's a lot on, there's a lot on the plate and I'm about to sneeze any second. Ready the sneeze. Let's go. There it is. Oh man. What a spicy meatball that was. Okay. Now, as we're saying, okay, so now let's go. We're going to go. We're going to go to our um, our article here. It's called Fuck the Mummies, and it's from Unbelievably Bad. It was posted on January, 14, January 4th, 2016 by Unbelievably Bad, and I believe it was conducted. Does it say who conducted it? Who conducted it? No, it does not. Uh, this is a two-parter, but it's a cool. It is a cool website. I suggest everybody check it out. I'm going to put the link in the comments. Uh, right underneath Keith Hampton's skulls. I advise all of you to leave me some skulls, please. Please put your skulls in the live chat, in the comments, in the this, in the that. Okay. But uh, instead of just uh, having this, I'm going to actually, let's leave the mummies up while we read about the mummies, okay? So I will read about the mummies, and you can look at the mummies while I am reading about them. We know what article we are reading. If you'd like to read along, for uh, today's read-along. This is a classic UB interview with uh, Trent Ru Ruane? Rune. How do you say your name, Trent? That's the that's the guy, that's the lead singer uh, organ player. And mind you, just take a listen to these guys once more before we start. No good. Floppy, raw. What I really like, too, about the mummies is that they, you know, uh, here is an area where they are kind of like the misfits. They are 
they are cohesive. They, they have chemistry and yet they are just barely, barely playing. Like they are, they are playing, but their playing is so sloppy. It's so, it's so carefree. Like they are just, they're shambling around playing these instruments in the most, almost kind of like a free form uninhibited way. You know, and yet somehow they're still hitting the notes that they need to hit. You know, this guy, Trent, he somehow is able to just, you know, keep uh, hold his tune while rolling around like this. It's just it's really great. It's spectacular. Um, And this is an interview with Trent. This is from Unbelievably Bad number three from 2006. And the poster is unbelievably bad. So I don't have a name to credit particularly. And this is what it says. Uh, The 80s managed to screw up a whole lot of things for everyone. The list is practically infinite. Garage music sits there as a fashion parade with the shitty up-to-the-moment production techniques sucking the life out of nearly anything redeemable uh, in the nearly every case of music. Along with the resounding fuck you came four mummies or guys dressed as mummies. It doesn't matter who gave the entire world the middle finger and somehow managed to create the basest form of garage music ever. Uh, Trent, the organist, vocalist, and head mummy, rose briefly from his crypt to speak to me 15 or so years after the mummies were laid to rest. So this is 20, uh, this is 2006, but I think the mummies broke up in around 94. So this guy's got his... This guy's got his dates wrong a little bit. Um, But this is two years before the mummies reunited in any kind of official capacity to go out and play songs. Um, So it's an interesting time. It's like an, it's like an in-between time. Now the mummies would go on the mummies, uh, bands that played along with the mummies and that the mummies were also involved in. You had bands called the a bones. You had the phantom surfers. That was another, they were an instrumental surf band and Russell, who plays drums, I believe, sings and plays guitar in the Phantom Surfers. Um, what's up, Sam Scamacy? And of course, the mummies are awesome and they deserve a spotlight. Let's let's read this interview with Trent. The interviewer asks, the mummies started sometime in 1988. Was there any kind of precursor to the band or, there, or were you in any other earlier groups? And Trent says, yeah, we were all in bands prior to the mummies, just like the Pete Best era Silver Beatles, only without being in 1960s Hamburg and with less less pussy. Oh, boy. Um, uh, Interviewer asks, what exactly were the origins of the band and where did the whole mummy thing come from? Uh, Maz uh, Katua is the bass player. Larry... Uh, Larry Winther is on guitar and I, so Maz, Larry, and I uh, knew each other from school. And we all started playing in bands at around the same time. And around this time in like 1986 or so, I used to check out mod shows and I would see this crazy Chinese guy who was always screaming at the top of his lungs, like some kind of uh, Sino Dave Aguilar with Tourette's. And that was Russell Kwan, Russell being the, the drum, the drummer, who became the drummer. Anyway, 
Me and Russell got along really well and started hanging out when he learned that I had a beat up old uh, Farfisa. That's the name of the organ that he has, which is such a has such a cool sound to it. When he knew I had the old Farfisa organ, he invited me to join a garage band that was just starting up from the ashes of a previous one he had just been in. That lasted for a couple of years until the four of us were just floating between bands. The mummies, the mummies gimmick came about during this time. Maz and I would go on shoplifting runs and hit all the local thrift stores. We'd hit different parts of the Bay Area. That's where, that's where they're from. They're from the Bay Area uh, in California. Uh, we'd hit different parts of the Bay Area throughout the week, which entailed a lot of driving. To pass the time on these runs, we'd toss around ideas for the dumbest possible idea for a band. So that's kind of like what it's all about. Like all this stuff. I feel like all this stuff, it's just about doing it because it's so dumb. And dumb is fun being dumb is fun. Doing dumb things is fun, you know, or the dumbest things end up being the coolest things. Why? Because it's the opposite of trying really hard and trying really hard is like one of the most uncool things ever. If I could think of the best way to explain that or how I understand what he is saying. Right. Um, so they think up the dumbest possible idea for a band. One day I came up with the idea of dressing like mummies. It got the most laughs. So we ran with it. You have to understand this was the eighties and humor was a bit different back then. What with Reagan and Bush and all this was actually funny shit in its day. The other thing to keep in mind was that you could score some really great shit at thrift stores back in those days. We would take turns getting jobs at thrift stores, working there for a week just to decode their secret price codes. These are typically letter codes that they write on items just in case you removed or swapped a price tag. And each store had its own homebrew code. I, you know, I've read this interview before. Anyway, Larry was the only guy around that we knew who was into playing surf guitar and shoplifting. So, and so I tapped him. We were a three piece at first with me playing bass and Maz on drums. I asked Russell to join, and since Russell has never been one to pass on the chance to do something stupid, he was in. We gave Maz a bass and sat him in front of a learn guitar like Chet Atkins record, and there you have it. Instant mud bass in 36 hours and the mummies. Is that not? And there's Trent right there. Oh, you can't see him. Hold on. Let me show you. That's a picture of Trent. Is that great? Is that, isn't that, isn't that just sublime? I, it really is. To me, it's sublime. And I don't mean the band. I mean, uh, you know, you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. Keith says, my band, the garbage people did a song called I'm the mummy bitch. Frankenstein and the Wolfman get, got nothing on me. I'm the mummy bitch. Don't mess with me. I'm the mummy. Sound, sounds fun, Keith. Rennie says, there's a lady on the Sea of Tranquility channel who is a huge fan of these guys. Um, you know, I've never done anything with the Sea of Tranquility channel. However, I know that they are affiliated with Rock Fantasy, who I was, that was on that Halloween panel with Bobby Steele talking about the Misfits. So those guys are cool. Um, let's keep reading. Uh, the interviewer asks, 
I've read about there being a bit of uh, a garage scene in California at that time. Uh, is this a journalistic lie or were there really like-minded groups together at the same time? Are there any forgotten groups worth tracking down? Uh, Trent responds, when we started, there wasn't a garage scene in California to speak of. In Southern California, you had bands covering garage tunes as an excuse to put on a fashion show. And as I mentioned, up here in the Bay Area, there was a pretty big mod scene in the 80s, which was about as close to garage as you were likely to get. Our very first show, in fact, is at a mod thing, which did not go over too well with the crowd. In the early days, we were lucky to have more than a club's personal personnel show up to one of our shows, and they were getting paid to be there. This pretty much summed up our amazing potential to draw large crowds until we went to Seattle for the first time. For some unbeknownst reason, we went over in a big way up there. And I wonder if it's because Seattle is the home is the hometown of the Sonics. Could that be the reason why? I don't know. I don't know. Um, additionally, when I think of the when I think of the beginnings of what would become the 90s, uh, from my limited knowledge, from my limited knowledge, when I think of the beginnings, I'm probably I'm sure Eric Davidson would correct me or tell me I'm wrong. Uh, but I would imagine that it's really like the mummies. It is. It's the mummies and bands of, of that ilk that this is the beginnings of the explosion that would explode in the 90s. And really, I think it really exploded in a big way in the 2000s. And you saw that breakthrough with the White Stripes, the Strokes, right? Those bands take a lot from the garage rock aesthetic, and especially the look of the White Stripes. You know, two-piece, two-piece fuzzy, you know, guitar and drums, you know, punky, garagey, indie rock. Um, I wonder what a lot of these bands think of the White Stripes. In fact, I do believe that the White Stripes came from, I don't know if they came from that scene, but they must have been in, ran in similar circles. The Black Lips. Um, so, so for some unbeknownst reason, we went over in a big way up there in Seattle. A lot of the local bands took a shine to us, which endeared us to the general show-going populace. From then on, we were considered, quote-unquote, cool in the Bay Area booking circles. In fact, immediately following our sojourn to the Great Northwest, we were often mistaken for actually hailing from there. This offers great insight into the complex mind of your typical club booking agent. You know, the, fun, the funny Trent is a very clever. He has that 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 Beatles wit, that like clever Beatles wit to him. I don't know. You know, sharp, really sharp. Soon there was a very short lived, extremely frenetic climate in San Francisco as we had inadvertently caused a scene in the literal sense. This was 1991. There were lots of really good shows for us that year, especially little, and I mean little hole in the wall called, sorry, especially at a little, and I mean little hole in the wall called the chameleon, which like a lot of good things is no longer, uh, is no longer extent. I don't know what that means existing. Unfortunately, like anything that takes off all the fucking losers suddenly come out of the woodwork. Soon everyone's in a garage band 
all covering the same songs. Every band has a gimmick like costumes or using thrift store instruments. Not that any of that is necessarily bad taken at face value. What he's really saying is it was really cool when we were doing it because we thought it was dumb and funny. And now it's become a scene and everybody's doing it and it's lame. All the assholes have showed up now. And that again is not unique. So everything that, that I would again, I would say that what makes, what makes budget rock unique is the, is the, uh, lo-fi aesthetic and the pride that the, the pride and authenticity. Uh, although you'll find pride and authenticity in, or you, you'd imagine that's in any underground counterculture sort of situation. Um, the problem is no one has enough balls to try any of it until it's been proven to work. So the mummies had enough balls to try it. And now that it was proven to work, a lot of other bands kind of followed suit. No one wants to play shows when there are more people in the band than in the audience. And we were only a four piece. Here's a great shot of some mummies. Look at Trent doing a split there. There you go. Very cool. Um, uh, the interviewer asks, the mummies were renowned for using shitty, shitty equipment. And I guess that's how you got that quote unquote sound. Did you figure a lot of the great 60s garage bands were forced to live by the same ethic and got stuck with that sound that's now considered characteristic? Uh, Trent responds, in a way, but I wouldn't go so far as to call it an ethic because back in the 60s this equipment was pretty state-of-the-art that's a great point they're using it now when it's not state-of-the-art but it has an its own unique you know musical characteristics right you know that's the thing about like why you know when you think about like why is this guitar so valuable they could just make a new one it's not just like sound when you so an instrument that's used to capture a sound that sound is unique to that exact combination of things that allow it to capture that sound the wood the pickups the metal that's used in the pickups the type of the the you know whatever whatever it is the type of of the the, the wiring the particular wiring the copper coils inside whatever the magnets that are used Every one of these things contributes to the signature sound in an authentic way that makes things that they don't, especially when they stop making this stuff. Could someone theoretically build a factory and, you know, bring back something to the exact spec specifications of something and refurbish it? Yes. But that won't happen. That won't happen for a lot of reasons. That won't happen because of capitalism, because, because it doesn't, it doesn't, make people money it's not it's not cost effective to do that sort of thing so when something isn't made anymore not only is it is it rare because it's not made anymore but it's rare because it captures it captures the essence of a sound that you can't get in any other kind of way i hope that made sense it's kind of like it's kind of like the idea of why an acetate mix would be so valuable to listen to because 
it's quite possible that if the band didn't like the way that the mix sounded, that they would then remix it. So leaving the acetate to have a unique mix of a song uh, uh, in the, in the place where, where it does not exist anywhere else, potentially. Um, so that's pretty interesting that he's saying that he's saying base besides back in the sixties, this equipment was pretty state of the art transistor organs. Shit. That was like high tech. Anyway, it was all about the sound for me. The guy in the fabs played a farfisa. If you want to sound like the guy in the fabs, you got to go and find a farfisa. For me, the sound on those old records was 99% of the appeal. The playing's generally shitty, as are most of the songs. So it's interesting how they're searching for a sound. They're searching for an analog sound that you can't build in a modern way. And that is also at the core of this, of trying to understand what budget rock is, I think. Uh, the interviewer asks, but it's interesting because we're going to, this is, I find this shit fascinating. Um, what kind of music did you record on? Uh, sorry. What kind of equipment did you record on and what kind of reverbs uh, and the like were you using? Uh, yes, that's right. They cut. So this is also a cover from a commercial. There's a commercial from the sixties with a slogan called uh, stronger than dirt. And the, the, the mummies had a song called, my love is stronger than dirt, stronger than dirt. My love, my love for you is stronger than dirt, stronger than dirt. Let's see what song they're playing right now. Oh. oh, perfect. Man, Russell. I mean, they're all integral, but there's something about like Russell's driving drum beats that just, God, are they fucking great. God, are they great. Um, I agree, Richard. It is a, indeed it is a banger. Perfectly stated. Um. All right. So, what kind of equipment did you guys record on, and what kind of reverbs and the like were you using? Trent says we recorded nearly everything we did on a rack mount cassette four track. That's it. Four tracks on a cassette. Despite those four tracks, we recorded things live and mostly pre-mixed on two tracks. What does that mean? What they recorded it live. So like many great records, like the self-titled Bad Brains uh, first LP, like Funhouse by the Stooges, like every Frank Black solo record, these things were recorded live in a room. Typically, if you're lucky or if you're doing it, trying to do it right or clean, you're recording when you're recording you're you're isolating your instruments the all the misfits all, all the misfits were recorded live they recorded themselves live 
So you're isolated in your booths and whatnot, and you are uh, capturing, uh, you're capturing the performance, and then you go back and maybe you do some, depending, you do some light overdubs. And when when he says recording live and then mixing uh, pre-mixed onto two tracks, that means that they're recording live, but they're 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 recording two two separate tracks live at the same time. My guess would be instruments on one track and then the vocals on another. So that way you can actually have some control and push the vocals up or down in the mix as needed. Um, I think this is cool as fuck. Like, you know, uh, I, if I had a band or if I was, you know, making music, I think I would want to record on some level like that. Why? Because there's, again, it's like capturing magic. It's like capturing energy like practice 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 get really good really cohesive at playing the song live in a controlled environment and then fucking laying it to tape if you want to if you want to turn white as a sheet and have your mouth dropped open in disbelief go listen frank black from the pixies black francis listen to his solo band frank black and the catholics those guys all of those albums all of those songs were recorded live to tape. Sometimes two tracks, sometimes one track. They were recorded live to tape. What you are hearing is a live performance in the studio, and it doesn't sound like it. They were so good. They were so tight. They were such masters of their instruments that the Catholics were able to somehow like magically cohesively put these songs together. And again, uh, maybe we should do a whole episode on it. Just the process of how Frank Black would record his uh, record live to tape, searching for authenticity. If you something that dates back to the Pixies in the sense that when they were asked to do music videos, they were like, "We refuse to lip sync because it's not genuine. There's nothing authentic about that." So when you watch, "Here Comes Your Man," they just open their mouths almost in protest. So then it goes, here comes your man. He just goes like this. And it's done as a way, because like, we're going to be authentic. We're going to be true to ourselves. And lip syncing is not true to us or to our music. So we are going to make a mockery of it. And so, again, this idea of recording this way that Trent is talking about, um, four tracks, recording things live and then pre-mixing on two tracks. And by pre-mix, he means, okay, this is crazy. <laughs> I love this shit, man. So pr by pre-mix, when he's saying pre-mix, because I was saying two tracks, you know, generally when you're done with the recording, you would, you know, you mix, you boost the levels uh, uh, up and down of the, um, of the vocals. Elvis, all of Elvis's early from like 1956, that's that self-titled record. That's all done two track. That was all live in the studio, two track recording. I believe Please Please Me was done on two track. I do not think Please Please Me was uh, was was uh, four track yet. Mind you, they recorded Please Please Me 10 songs in 18 hours in a single day. Four other tracks were from an earlier session. So when he says pre-mix, he's saying, 
By pre-mixed, I mean I would manually ride the mixer during the recording and adjust the levels on the fly, like boosting the guitar track during the solo or turning it down when it sucked. That made it pretty damn easy to master stuff later as there would be a whole lot you could fix. There wouldn't be a whole lot you could fix or twiddle with. Now, why is he... So Is the, how would he boost the guitar track? I don't understand. When he says they're recording to two tracks, do they have the guitars on a separate track from drums, bass, and 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 uh, vocals and organ? I I don't understand why he would why he's using guitar as an example instead of his instead of vocals. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess so. When he's saying so, they would use all four tracks. Huh, wait, what does he mean though? So they did use all four tracks live in the studio. I would four tracks, you recorded things live and then pre-mixed on two tracks. So two of the tracks, so guitar, okay. So maybe what I'm trying to understand is so on the guitar and maybe the vocals, he was mixing by manually writing during the recording and then drums and bass or essentially untouched i don't know that made it pretty damn easy to master this stuff later as there wouldn't be a whole lot you could do to fix or twiddle with it also it left two tracks open to use for things like reverb okay all right i take that back so they are not using all four tracks they're only they are indeed using two tracks so i don't understand why i'm i'm very confused okay so maybe they recorded guitar tracks separately, like the solos separately, and that was the second track. I'm just trying to think of what the second track was for if it was not for vocals. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, but that's interesting. We use the outboard reverbs and echo boxes occasionally, but the best reverb always came from room acoustics. What does that mean? It means the natural room that you're recording in. So you look again. I want to go back to the Pixies. Um, Steve Albini recorded the album Surfer Rosa and he recorded it in all sorts of funky places it, where in order to get really unique sounds, he would record in bathrooms and hallways and all sorts of places. And, and that was how, you know, back in the day, again, going back to Abbey Road, when you had, I believe the way that you got reverb was you had to have a resonating chamber which the Beatles used to smoke in, by the way. So a resonating chamber, it's like a giant echo, echoey chamber. And that's what physically shapes the sound that gets picked up by a microphone and comes out as reverb. Now it can be all done in a computer. But what he's saying is that the best reverb came from this, came from the room acoustics. Now, every single room, it doesn't matter what the size is. It doesn't matter... It does not matter uh, what the size is, and it does not matter what the room is. Every single room has a sound. It has a sound when things are quiet, and it has a sound when noise is made with inside it, and it is unique. It, no two rooms are ever going to sound the same. So when you find a space that manipulates sound well when it's bouncing off of surfaces, hard surfaces... It can create, you know, different, you know, 
different frequencies of, of, of reverb or echo or whatever. And in this case, they like their reverb was um, the acoustics of a room. We always recorded wherever we could make noise for a few hours. The only time we ever recorded in a legitimate recording studio was at the BBC when we were in London. And that was for the, the legendary Peel Sessions. Go look up the Mummy's Peel Sessions. That to me, so they do a, a rendition, another cover that they do. Probably my favorite Mummy's you know, cover, Mummy song is called Baba Diddy Baby. And they do it for the Peel Sessions version. That might be, that is that is such a slice of heaven. That is such that that is so perfectly. This there's a version of it. There's a Baba Diddy Diddy Baby that they did on Death Death by Unga Bunga. Not nearly as good as the one done at in in Peel. But how fascinating that that the Peel Studio was the only time that they were actually in a real recording studio. Um. Incidentally, this was the last time the mummies ever recorded. You can blame John Peel for that. Okay, I did not know that. It's so the last mummies recording ever, which makes sense because it was um it was it was 1994, and that's when they broke up. Yes, that's right. They did high heel sneakers as well. Put the red uh uh put your red dress, baby. Da -da -da, going out tonight. No, oh my god, why am I totally butchering that whatever uh yeah i think the sonics it was the sonics yeah the bbc seven inch it, man that is a, they okay so the track listing is the fly the ballad of iron eyes cody uh baba diddy baby high heel sneakers and there's a track in the middle that i'm neglecting right what's the track in the middle wait it goes the fly is first the ballad of iron eyes cody um skinny mini maybe maybe it's skinny mini and then uh and then baba diddy baby and then high heel sneakers put your red dress on baby because we're going out tonight um four track oh it was four tracks my mummy's vinyl is home Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Are you sure it's four tracks? I think no, 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 no. Can't hold on a second. I, I mean, I, you're probably right. I don't know what I'm talking about. Hold on. Uh, Mummy's Peel Sessions. Why do I, why am I certain that there was a fifth song? The Peel Sessions right from 94. Yes, there. Yes. Okay. That's what it is. Okay. I am right. Uh, it goes the fly, the ballad of Iron Eyes Cody, uh, just one more dance, Baba Diddy Baby, and High Heel Sneakers. And this is shocking to me. Uh, I guess Maz doesn't play on that recording. It's actually a guy named Kevin Beasley. I did not know that. Yeah, so it's it. I I just knew. I I had a feeling. I had a feeling it was five. I was just trying to remember what that that what that that middle one was, and it's just one more dance, which is also great. It goes ah, just one more dance. Oh shit! I don't know what I just messed up. Messed up something. Um. So yeah, did we run out of? Oh crap! We ran out. Let's let's restart that. Actually, I could listen to this. I've listened to this a million times, uh, them at the cake shop. 
Jay play in the cake shop. All right, let's come on. Let's finish this up. Um, it's getting late. So the only time we ever recorded was at a legitimate uh, recording studio. It was at the BBC when we were in London. Uh, incidentally, it was the last time the mummies ever recorded. You could blame John Peel for that. Anyway, Mike of the Phantom Surfers used to work in this huge concrete and steel furniture warehouse, where, which is where the first couple of singles were recorded. Later on, our rehearsal space, which was the other place we tended to record, didn't have the best acoustics, so we would record, then blast the record through. Okay, this is awesome. So we would record, then blast the recording through an amp in the bathroom or hallway with a strategically placed mic and re-record a spare reverb track. And we always had the Fender outboard reverb units sitting around since three quarters of the mummies were in the phantom surfers at some point we used echo. So this is, this is so cool, man. This is so, I love this shit, man. I love this shit. So they would take their recordings and blast the recording through an amp down a bathroom or a hallway and then re-record the whole thing so that it uh, created a spare reverb track or created reverb in the process. That's so cool. I mean, that to me, that's going to sound cooler like any, than anything you're going to try and do at in the studio, man. Um, I was in a band at the time that did uh, One More Dance. Great song. It's a great song. I want to start a band called The Bummies. We dress like NYC bums and only do mummies covers. Now, there is a band out there that all mummy fans and budget rock people friggin' hate. They are called Here Come the Mummies. And the reason why people hate them so much is because they really did sort of ape the mummies gig. They just, they dress like mummies. When you search for the mummies, Here Come the Mummies come up. Everybody hates them. They're pieces of shit. Fuck them. They play like weird ska music. Like they're so don't, you know what it's like? It's the equivalent of like, you see an advertisement for the Red Hot Chili Pipers. Okay. There's a band called the Red Hot Chili Pipers. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch of Scots, Scotsmen, I guess, or Scott, you know, it's a Scottish band in the kilts, the, the whole nine yards. And, uh, and they're, they play, they play songs, but you have to imagine that half of their ticket sales come from the fact that they call themselves the Red Hot Chili Pipers and people mistakenly buy these tickets thinking it's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That has had to have happened a few times. I would say that might even be grounds for uh, grounds for a lawsuit of some kind. Yes. Uh, see, people are right on top of it. Rennie says, I was just about to mention that mummy, mummy ripoffs. Exactly. Yeah. Here come the mummies hurt me, hurt me feelings. <laughs> they really do. Fuck them so hard, man. <laughs> they're, they're so, they're so dumb. Um, but it seems that they did care about acoustics. They're saying, hey, hey, we didn't have the best acoustics. So we would go here. We go there. So they used echo plexes on a couple of tracks. And I had this really great K reverb that sounded like complete horseshit. I gave it to Darren from Supercharger. Years ago, when I thought when I was through with rock and roll, 
I think that's what we use for the guitar solo on A Girl Like You, but cranked through an amp in a very large bathroom and re-recorded. My advice is to save your money and fuck them expensive reverb units. That's the budget rock way. It's this re-recording method that gives you the sound that's on the verge of completely falling apart and into utter oblivion. It's priceless, and at the same time, it's worthless. I, I mean, it's just, I feel like it makes it extra special in a way. You need an all-female punk band called the Mammaries. That would be lovely. I, I think that would be great. Why not? Hey, listen, you know, we have all sorts of, you know, um, we have all sorts of bands and all sorts of gimmicks. Why not? I think that would be, I would, I would imagine it would have already existed in some way, shape or form. So who knows? Um, the interviewer asked when choosing material to cover, how, uh, when choosing material to cover, how do you work out what to do? Uh, when I want to cover stuff, I try to avoid tracks that I really like because I know I'll fuck them up and never want to listen to them again, says the interviewer. And Trent Trent responds, well, I think you're naturally inclined. I love how Trent Trent in this interview, like he's funny and sharp and witty, but like he takes the questions seriously and tries his best to answer them. Like it's just he's what a cool guy. He says, well, I think you're naturally inclined to pick songs that you like. The trick is to be objective about how you how your version sounds. And that's hard. If you can bring something to the song, like a really unique sound in the recording or totally fuck up the rhythm or something, then that's worth it in my mind. Agreed. And that's something that Glenn doesn't Uncle Glenn always say that, too. He says, if you're going to, although I think a lot of Glenn's covers are not very good. Um, I actually, I think one of his best covers he ever did was Ratfink because it was, he really transformed it in a wonderful kind of way. Um, but you know, generally speaking, you really should try and do something fresh and unique with the song, a different arrangement, something that, that makes it special so that it won't be compared to the original something that, you know, this is my feeling on, on cover songs. It should be like, wow, that's these are my these are my thoughts on cover songs. A cover song, a co when you listen to a cover song, two things should come into your mind. One, wow, I'm really glad that version of that song exists. And two, I don't, no matter what my opinion is of this cover song, I in no way compare it or contrast it with the original because I see that the artist is trying to do something completely unique and different with it. And therefore it's not worthy of any kind of comparison. It's its own sort of, it's its own thing. And in its own league, even if it is the same song, I'm not going to try to compare it. And those are two qualities that I think I really look for in a cover of, of a song. Do I end up ultimately comparing, you know, and, you know, ranking, you know, is this better than this? Is this better than this? Yeah, I do. But still, um, <clears throat> he says, if you could bring something to that song, like a really unique sound uh, in the recording or totally fuck up the rhythm or something that's worth it in my mind. Our very first recordings were attempts at capturing the sound from those original garage 45s, though not necessarily one for one. That is, we try to get the drum sound from one record and maybe the guitar sound from another in our version of a completely different song. 
uh, or our take on Come On Up, which is suitably different enough from the Rascals version, uh, made it worth doing to me. It's a god-awful boring song, but fun to play and easy, so you can really fuck around on stage while still managing to play it. And that's another key thing about what we were seeing, what we're seeing with the mummies, you know, doing their thing. They are able to just sort of get really sloppy and, and throw themselves around because what they're playing is not, you know, um, you know, it's not super difficult for them to play in that kind of way. Um, what else was I saying? Wait a minute. Just had the wrong tab out. That's why. Um, sorry, I lost my place. It's a goddamn boring, awful song, but fun to play and easy. You could still fuck around on stage while still managing to play it. After a few singles, there was a big shift in our recordings. I wanted a sound that was completely quote unquote us and not some attempt at aping the past. But it sounds like that they steeped themselves enough in the past to go and confidently seek out a sound that they could consider that was theirs. Uh, it certainly didn't mean going into a studio and doing things the right way either. I wanted something that was as close to what we sounded like live as possible. And that's what that's when you get the sound on the never been caught LP. That's the quintessential budget rock sound. That's the sound that all lo-fi garage bands that came after us tried to ape, or in a lot of cases, outdo. Again, a case of the mummies making it safe for bands around the world to sound like shit. So that was part one. And now part two is, it's very short. It's not very long. It's just a few, it's a few more answers like this and, and we'll wrap it up and call it a day. So that was, this is from 2007, okay? Um, you covered some pretty obscure songs. Uh, where did it all come from, especially in the pre-internet days? Stuff like Ajax and Cleansers and the Cleansers Stronger Than Dirt, Rockin' Ramrods, She Lied, and Big Boy Pete by the Tidal Waves. Um, and Trent says, yeah. The internet really did change a lot. At the risk of sounding like a stereotypical Luddite, which I am, things were definitely harder before. I mean, you actually had to physically look for things in the real world, pouring through the phone book in every town you drove through while on tour or even on weekends looking for record stores, thrift stores, and guitar shops. Kids today could just Google about anything, and with eBay, they could buy it too, all without ever having to leave their houses. There's also an indescribable thrill in the shoplifting that you just can't, <laughs> that you just don't get by using stolen credit cards online. Anyway, some of our material came from comps and some of it came from finding records at local swaps or even junk stores. Then we had folks like Todd at Telstar Test, Records or Tim Warren from Crypt sending us tapes with stuff that they thought we ought to cover, stuff that hadn't made it out onto comps yet. Uh, even the whole business of putting out your own records was some kind of secret and mysterious thing that only real record labels could do. Bullshit. That was the one of the great things about the scene up in Seattle. People were actually doing things on their own. So when we rolled into town for the first time with our first single in hand, it was completely normal to them. Uh-oh. 
Did I just go back in time? Yeah, it did. That was stupid. Um, here we go. What's up, Jody Ramon? Jody Ramon, a mama, ooh, mow, mow, 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 ooh, mow, mow, mama, ooh, mow, mow. All right. Okay. So back to what I was saying. So even putting out records was a secret and mysterious thing that only real record labels could do. Bullshit. Uh, that was one of the great things about the scene up in Seattle. People were actually doing things on their own. So when we rolled into town for the first time with our first single in hand, it was completely normal to them. Whereas back home, it was some kind of amazing thing that we had a record out. In the Bay Area, it was as if there was some kind of epidemic fever that made everybody uh, J-retarded. Let's say it like that. All you had to do was a little research, find a record plant, send them a tape and some money and done. You had a record all your own. No one telling you what songs could be on it or what the cover should look like. And this, this is what I am all about. Right to the next of me. Fucking, I have authoring software. I have discs. I am in the process of putting out my own discs too. Because that is the, that is the punk way. That is our way. Um. I lost my place again. Yeah, so you have no one telling you what to do, what songs could be on it, or what the cover should look like. Hell, we didn't even have to make covers. Hell, we didn't even have the covers made by the record plant for the first couple of singles. It was cheaper to have them printed here in town, and we could get away with a cover like Food, Sickles, and Girls. We cut and folded and glued each one of the sleeves for the first two singles by hand. We were cheap bastards, but we always passed the savings on to the people. That's the budget rock way. With your own material, do you know what I have? And I haven't opened it. I saw the Mummies live in 2016, and they were selling uh, a mystery song. In it was sealed, and I, I it was five dollars, and I bought it, and I still haven't opened it because I love it so much, and I love that it's sealed, and it was a tour only release, and I like. It's an immaculate condition. Mummy's vinyl is fucking valuable, valuable. That stuff goes for hundreds of dollars in some cases. Um, and I just can't, I can't bear to cut it open and see, see the, listen to the song inside, which is such a goofy thing, especially from me, who is not a collector. Um, so yeah, we were cheap bastards, but we always pass the savings on to the people. That's the budget rock way. Ha ha ha. Uh, with your own material, did you feel you had a lot to live up to based on the covers you were doing? That's that's pretty interesting. Um, as much as I like garage music, there's really not much to live up to. I can write shitty songs as good or as bad as the next guy. Uh, you did a little time in Untamed Youth, which I also have the record of Untamed Youth 7-inch, and the Phantom Surfers around 1992. Was this after the mummies first called it quits? And he goes, yeah, I'm on Untamed Youth's live in Las Vegas album on Estrus. Estrus is another record label that did all that, all that stuff, all that stuff. Yes. Yes. It's my understanding that that record is valuable. Yes. Anna, I'm glad you like the mummies too. Munchie says, 
there was a really crazy circus freak Bay area band called the idiot flesh. And they were like the Jim Rose circus. They destroyed shit so hard to see them live. I'll check them out. I will check them out. Jody Ramone says, imagine for Halloween one year, you open your mummy's vinyl and make a video reviewing it. Maybe that's what I should do. You know, document the experience. I, I just can't bring myself. It's in like a sleeve that's sealed that you can't open. You have to physically tear it in order to open it. And like, I just can't bring myself to do it. And so I've literally never listened to it because I just, I just, it's such a, it's such a bullshit cop out, man. Like I really should just open that fucker, you know, and just enjoy it. Um, so there was a spell where I was playing in both youth and the surfers simultaneously. My stint with the surfers started back in 1990 while the mummies were still around. We did a couple of tours of the Northwest, i.e. Uh, Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver with the surfers as support. And I did double duty on at least one of those tours because I'm so damn ugly. I'm always behind a goddamn mask. Uh, interviewer asked, was there much of a story to the end of the mummies or did you all just decide to go your separate ways? Um, Trent says, believe it or not, the band split because of a really stupid argument that happened on the flight back from New York after playing what we thought was our last show before we got back together to do the European tours. We had recorded a whole new album's worth of material and had been planning on releasing it. When we got back home, this was January 1992. The problem was Maz on bass wasn't on all the tracks. We had been fighting an awful lot during this time, and he had taken off during the recording sessions, quote unquote, to go to some slot car event that was happening in Arizona, uh, thinking that we couldn't continue without him. We did anyway. A friend of ours who was a bass player in another band, which shall remain nameless, filled in and we finished the last of the tracks. Anyway, to this day, it is a really ugly mess and there are constant threats of lawsuits or just plain ass kicking if the album ever comes out. It's been 15 years now. By the way, this is the first time I've ever disclosed this info. Scoop for the unbelievably bad. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that there was so much uh, tumult between Maz and the rest of the guys and all this, that, and the other. I don't know why, how, how there could be lawsuits or ass kickings. Um, this is cool. Look at this photo. Check out that photo. I like that photo. Uh, Oof. Almost, almost through here, people. Almost through here. Uh, I believe they. I believe that they did. Uh, Estrus did do that. I have. You know what I have? I have a compilation seven inch called Tales from Estrus, and it's like some sort of weird split, and it's really cool. It's got some really cool bands, and Untamed Youth as well is on one of them, I believe. Uh so. So interviewer asks, I've heard you're somehow involved in the computer IT world now. Is this a lesson to people in, uh, is there, is this a lesson to people in this about no matter how cool your garage band is, you'll have to get a real job someday. And Trent says, well, if you're making a living by being in a band, that either means you're never going to get anywhere, quote unquote, or your band's inane enough to appeal to enough people to keep the money rolling in. Working bands fall into the first category. 
These are bands that make an honest living schlepping their gear across town night after night, playing clubs, parties, restaurants, wherever. The latter group is made up of famous bands. The numbers work against you there, my friend. Think about it. Uh, what would it take for just about everyone that lives in your neighborhood uh, to like your band? Like it enough to repeatedly pay to see you perform and buy your records. Right. Your band has to be shitty enough to appeal to masses of people who have their taste in music, film, art, or even their general knowledge of news, current events, politics, etc., set by commercial corporate-run media. The thing about the mummies was that we were just in it for the kicks. We knew we were never going to get anywhere, so we never fooled ourselves into thinking we should take any of it seriously. What a really cool, interesting, insightful outlook on all of it. It's a, it's a bit cynical, too, but I, can you blame him? I mean, everything he said there is so accurate. Uh, the interviewer asks, mind you, this is 2006, and two years later, Trent and the Mummies would come back, and they have never stopped. They On occasion, they get together, they play a couple of shows, and that is that. Do you still play music at all? Asked the interviewer. And Trent says, occasionally I fill in on guitar in a string band with one of the guys from our crumbs, uh, cheap, cheap suit serenaders, uh, marches, foxtrots, waltzes, Hawaiian tunes, that sort of thing. I've always been into pre-war music as in World War II, not Desert Storm. Uh, and after I got the rock and roll thing out of my system, I only listened to that type of music. That's weird. Over the last couple of years, though, I've slowly been able to stomach some rock and roll again, mainly 70s English pub rock. What a weird. That's super weird to me. I can't. I don't know why. How did you guys cope on your tours of Europe? Got any tips for finding places to sleep? And Trent says, don't pay for anything. Get some rich kid to pay for everything. Drive your shit around. Set up your shows and feed your ass and stay away from German psychobillies or English ones for that matter. We stayed with some psychobilly guys in Frankfurt once, and one of the dudes actually killed someone. Come to think of it, we stayed with some other dude in Belgium who also killed someone, though he wasn't a psychobilly. Sometimes you get stuck in queer lodgings. Ugh. Weird thing to say in today's day and age. On the continent. Anyway, the German dude always carried around a really big fucking hunting knife and used it in restaurants instead of the silverware provided. Fucking savages. Um, why are most of the people asking uh, why are most of the people asking for a mummies reunion sweaty old collector type guys do, uh, does this ever have a chance of happening fucking let me tell you something do you think misfits nerds are bad budget rock nerds are the fucking worst they are the worst the worst kind of uh, oh my god they are the redditors they are the redditors of the fucking of punk rock world i don't know how else to describe them they are the unsavory people not a fan mind you most of my interactions with them have been in a budget rock face group group whatever um so Trent responds to this thing about a reunion saying, you ever see the old horror flick, The Mummy? You know how those assholes, a.k.a. explorers, exploit the quote unquote savages 
bust into that tomb, steal a bunch of shit, wake up the dead guy and piss him off. What happens to them all? Yeah, they get all fucked up for stealing shit and being dicks. It's called payback. When we were playing, we stole a lot of shit from clubs. I mean, a lot. Microphones, cables, stands, monitors, alcohol, and yes, money. It's sort of like a reverse. <laughs> it's sort of like a reverse mummy's curse. I love that they have a record called Party at Steve's House. <laughs> Poor Steve. That's their final record, actually. It's a live record. Party at, I guess all their records were live, but Party at Steve's House. That's funny. Um, that is the reason why our curse isn't as fucked up as what those fuckers have to deal with in the movie. It still sucks, though. I mean, how would you like it if the only people who ever come see your band reunion are fat, virginal, bearded record collector fucks? Look at them here. So, mind you, in the time since when they've reunited, currently right now, there is a Mummies feature-length movie being made. That's right. You heard me correctly. There is a feature-length film about the mummies being made right now. They've been shooting it for a long time. There, there is going to be a mummies movie. Just, just, just so you are aware, in case you don't know, what happened to the budget rock hearse? First of all, it was an ambulance, a 1963 Pontiac Bonville ambulance, to be exact. Purportedly, the same make model year used to transport whatever was left of JFK to the hospital because Texas is the reason. And yes, I just added that line in there. Trent did not mention the misfits in any way, shape, or form. Anyway, after the van broke up, it was getting to be a pain to drive that shit around town just to get groceries. And I ended up leaving it in a lot next to the old budget rock headquarters. Okay, now here's where it gets totally crazy. I get this phone call one day from this English guy who's interested in buying the thing. He leaves this message on my answering machine and I'm playing it back thinking that the voice is totally familiar, but I just can't place it. It's not Billy Childish. Billy Childish, again, from he's the other garage rock, you know, um, uh, heavy, heavy gun from the Mighty Caesars and the Milkshakes and just all of Billy Childish. In fact, the mummies have a song making fun of Billy Childish called That's Mighty Childish. And it's about it's about Billy Childish. Uh, it's not Billy Childish. And I play the darn thing over and over again. Anyway, long story short, it was Ian fucking Dury thinking it must be a joke because I'm pretty sure he wasn't in the best of health at this point. And like, what the fuck would he want with the mummy mobile anyway? I return his call to tell him that I'd be willing to part with it but that shipping it would fucking kill him. No pun intended. He insisted that he was still interested, mumbling something about JFK. I suppose he could have been mumbling something about the UK and not JFK, but it was impossible to tell given his fuck up, fucked up Cockney, Cockney accent. Uh, and we basically closed the deal. Didn't make much off it. As I felt bad, he was going to have to shell out big bucks for a container and ship it to England. Anyway, I didn't believe it was really him back then, I, and I still don't. All I know is that I got a wad of dough wired to me, and I shipped that thing off to uh, Blightly. Uh, interviewer says, a friend of mine was telling me about this time that he was recording with George Dr Dracolius. Now, George Dracolius is a name that you might be familiar with. Who is George Dracolius? What, what does he play bass on? 
He plays bass for the Glenn Danzig Power and Fury Orchestra on You and Me. He's Rick Rubin's right-hand man and was there for the recording of Danzig 1, like all the Danzig stuff, as far as I know. Yes, uh, I have not. First of all, I love polystyrene and I love the x-ray specs and I have not seen this documentary and I will totally watch it. She is... She was the queen. She was the queen. Uh, wasn't her daughter, Maya Rudolph, on SNL? Am I crazy? I'm pretty sure that that was her daughter. Um, in any case, a friend of mine was telling me about this time that he was recording with George uh, Tricolius, and he bought a mummy's bootleg video somewhere and took it into the studio. They all hung out and watched it. He then overheard George call up Rick Rubin and say, Hey, Rick, have you ever heard of this 90s band, The Mummies? Yeah, yeah, that singer. He could be a rock star. Yeah, he sang, he sings great. So can we expect a Trent solo album with Rick Rubin sometime? And this is the and this is what he says. Who's Rick Rubin? Um, oh my god, is there a third part? How did I not know this? Shit. Oh, fuck me. I mean, how can we not read the third part? I'm not going to come back to this. Damn it. There's a third part. Oh, fucker. It's already 11 o'clock. Shit. All right. All right. All right. Let's just do it. Son of a bitch. I thought we were done. Oh, man. All right. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I just like, you know, I got I got stuff I got to do. Um, on the road with a beyond the grave stink leaking from their budget rock ambulance, the mummies, uh, pillaged onto the final split of the group in 1993 after a brief European reunion tour, uh, head mummy, uh, Trent talks of losing teeth, thrifty living and how the mummies only ever really appealed to drunks and balding, sweating record collector guys and the ultimate death at the hands of uh, primitive tribal sodomites. Okay, that's where the ung unga bunga thing is. You toured the U.S. steadfastly for a while. How did you keep things together on the road, and how did you all manage to pay your bills? How did some of the varied bills go down, like the Billy Childish and Nation of Ulysses string of shows? There were there were several things that occurred every time that we went on tour. Of course, we'd manage the usual printing of T-shirts and the packing of 45s to sell, but we also had a few budget rock tricks up our sleeves while on the road. One of them was the old drive through scam. When we were in a new town, we'd steal a copy of the phone directory, <laughs> locate all the fast food restaurants in the immediate area, <laughs> and we'd all apply for a job. <laughs> and we'd all apply for jobs as many as possible. Undoubtedly, one of <laughs> one of us one of us would secure a job. <laughs> Usually our bass player, he was the most respectable looking of the lot, and that's all it would take. At the arranged time, we'd drive the mummy about him. <laughs> This can't be real. This can't be real. Um, we drive the mummy mobile to the drive-thru window where our working man, quote unquote, would start throwing as much food as he could <laughs> as he could through the window to the rest of us. 
Then he'd run like hell out of the restaurant around the corner down the street where we'd be waiting for him. As you can imagine, a 1963 Pontiac Bonville ambulance is not the most inconspicuous vehicle to be pulling a stunt like this off. Uh, we had an amazing string of good fortune, though, and only one case that things go awry, awry, awry. But that's a story for another time. We also did a fair amount of shoplifting on the road at thrift stores, guitar shops, and record stores. And we'd turn around and resell most of that stuff to folks we'd stay with or others we'd meet at shows. Collectibles are always a hot commodity with the hipster crowd. Uh, this would help pay for gas. I don't know what clubs were like down your way, but clubs in America pay dick. So you have to exercise a fair amount of creativity in order to make ends meet. One of our favorite little habits was to steal equipment from these cheapskate clubs like microphones, cables, stands, and the like. And since you brought them up, I just want to say that the guys in the nation of Ulysses were fucking great. We crashed at the embassy when we played in D.C. and they showed us a fantastic time. Uh, the answer is yes, they were. Not only were they affiliated with the Phantom Surfers, but they also played, many of the members played in the Phantom Surfers. Munchie says the 2012 record store hipsters are now fat, balding, Cheeto-dusted, finger, orange, cock, sweaty, vinyl molesters. They really are, man. They really fucking are. And, you know, it's so funny. Again, and they're in these budget rock Facebook groups, some of them, and they are just, they're the worst. They are the worst. I, I have one story particularly that just blew me away. I, I mean, it's whatever. It's whatever. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, the interviewer asks, when playing live, I figured the Mummies always talked between songs so much because you were either a bunch of loudmouths or you were really hot in those suits and you needed to cool down for a minute. What are the best and worst jokes that the Mummies have been responsible for on stage? Uh, trigger warning, uh, this is potentially about to get raunchy. The actual reason for our lengthy between-song banter was due to the quality of the equipment we were using. Our drum kit would literally fall apart during a set, requiring the drummer to do a bit of on-the-spot fabrication. Mind you, this interview is in sections, and it's interesting how Trent uses different... He's not referring to specific names. I wonder if things got bitter before they got better... Uh, uh, in between these interviews, unless it was all conducted at once. Uh, so, so Russell would have to do uh, a bit of on the spot fabrication and repair whenever we play a gig. Luckily he was an auto mechanic by trade and he always bring his big ass toolbox with him on stage where the rest of us would inevitably trip over it. I would also fuck with the guitarist quite a bit during his solos, like pulling him around the stage by the head of his guitar or unplugging him, or turning, his, uh, turning off his amp so an inordinate amount of time was spent retuning or trying to find why it wasn't making any sound anymore. I always, <laughs> I always thought the funniest joke was the fact that all these people who had paid to see a show spent so much time waiting for us to play than watching us play. That's some seriously funny shit. I mean, we're talking about incredible power here. Uh, the kind like Puppet Master or something. Okay, how long can I keep these people interested enough in this shit before they just pack it in and leave? There's definitely a limit to people's patience, but after enough shows, you get the feeling, you get a feel for where their threshold is, and playing with that is a incredible rush. 
Um, there's a great video I came across of the mummies live at Shamrock in LA. Uh, by the last song, you're loading your equipment out into the car park while the others finishing with an instrumental. And it was actually a pretty fucking cool show. What do you think was the worst mummy show ever? Every mummy show was the worst show ever. I think truly the worst part of playing any show though, especially if you're headlining is having to suffer through all the other fucking horrible bands on the bill. The cherry on top of the turd is when a really horrible band is made up of a bunch of nice people. What the hell do you say to them when they compliment you at the end of the show? What we used to tell bands was that this was like, well, sorry, what we used to tell bands like this was that they were really tight, quote unquote, which was no lie next to the mummies. Any other band pretty much fits that description. A, per, a, a particularly funny show, though, was one of the Billy Childish shows you mentioned earlier. We did a summertime tour of the Northwest in Canada with, with the headcoats in 91. The first show of the tour was in Seattle at a club called The Off-Ramp. And after the show, me and the guitarist got into an all-out knockdown fistfight over a misunderstanding. And I got kicked out of the club for trying to break his head open by throwing beer bottles at it. I also tried some kung fu moves on the bouncer, but he pretty much beat the sh shit out of me. So here I go flying out the doors of the club where I land right, right in front of my girlfriend who then totally kicks my ass all over again over the same misunderstanding outside the club and in front of Billy and crew who was pissing their pants watching this comedy unfold. Anyway, the bass player and the drummer had already split by then. And after retrieving my missing teeth, I decided to as well. What I didn't realize, however, was that I took the only set of keys with me, which meant that my guitarist was stuck with all the gear and the mummy mobile in front of the club all night. Well, as you can imagine, he was pretty pissed off the next morning, so much so that he quit the band then and there after the very first show of a three-week tour. Uh, well, the rest of us successfully blackmailed him into re-enlisting, and he was flat broke at the time, and none of us were about to loan him any dough to buy a bus ticket back home. Re-releasing the Mummy Mummy's Never Been Caught on CD and later remastered CD compilation Death by Unkabunga seemed to be the ultimate fuck you to fans and to the buying public holding the primitive scuzz of the mummies to heart. Essentially, isn't this the mummies truly railing against one of their original ideas? Viva vinyl and all that. That's right. The mummies, one of the mummies, like one of the things that they say is like fuck CDs. Like that's their whole thing is like fuck CDs. Um, so yeah, they eventually caved and put out CDs and Trent says, see the problem with the mummies. And this is proof positive that we were never in it for the money. The girls or just to be cool was that the only really was that we only really appealed to two types of people, record collectors and drunk males. Now the drunks wouldn't really remember ever having seen or heard us in any way, but the record collectors can go fuck themselves. If they really want to pay a lot of dough for our old records on eBay or whatever, then it's the mummy's curse working on them. But if a some poor, but if some poor kid who was six years old when we broke up and is just finding out about us now, uh, uh, then we should be expen. Then why should it be expensive for him 
to hear what we sounded like. So, you know, that's, I mean, that's really admirable, like admirable. Hey, we're going to put this on CD for kids who were not born or, or really around when we were playing. I mean, that's, I, I think that's a good thing. Likewise, if one of those drunks sold off the record collection for booze money and is, but is now born again Christian or Buddhist or something and just wants to sit back and chill to Stronger Than Dirt again, why should the poor sap have to pay, pay a lot of dough for that? I mean, he's probably already been through enough shit. Um, record, uh, in, interviewer says, I figure Death by Unga Bunga album title is based... I figure the Death by Unga Bunga album title is based on an old joke. Is that how you see the end of the mummy's career being like a death by Unga Bunga? No, this is like being sodomized by a gang of angry tribesmen. Okay, that's what it was. So it's being sodomized by a gang of angry tribesmen. That's the Unga Bunga, death by Unga Bunga. He doesn't the guy doesn't want to to that to happen to him and so he says i'd rather die and then they say okay death by ungabunga that's what happens i was wondering what fell on the floor it was my remote um uh trent says yeah when i was working on putting together that compilation i kept thinking about that joke because to me because to me, having heard all those songs so many times already was kind of like one of those ass-stretching shots from a cheap porno after way too much hide the salami, total descended bloody, bloody dilation, exactly how my ears were feeling. Yikes. Um, you had me fooled with the cover of Play Their Own Records until I found the picture on the website was revealing the curtain rod in someone's living room and the band are standing in front of whose place is this and where did you uh, get the idea to not only dress as mummies but top, top it off with tuxedos. I love this this record cover one. Mummies play their own records. This is such a great uh, image. Oh no, that's not them. That's not it. There's another one that's that's really fun. That's the wrong one. That's annoying. I don't know. I don't know where it is. It's not the same thing though. Hmm. Um. Believe it or not, the mummies were a class act, and sometimes we were required to play some pretty upscale fucking events. You know, black tie things. As for the photos. They were taken at the former Mummies uh, pre-BS HQ where members of the Mummies, Phantom Surfers, Supercharger, and for a short while, the Fingers all lived in a tremendously large and dangerous house, which was precariously perched on the edge of a cliff overlooking both the Pacific Ocean and the Daily City Municipal Garbage Dump. So the Phantom Surfers, Supercharger, and the Mummies all lived together in, in, a, in a building that is hilarious. Um. What made it dangerous was the fact that the house was located right along the San Andreas Fault. Nevertheless, it was a huge house and dirt cheap rent because of the danger, and it had a three-car garage underneath it besides. Um, the whole affair was a fantastic setup if you were in a band. See, we were the last house on our side of the street. Every other house on that side literally had collapsed during the quake, so no neighbors to our left 
sheer cliff drop off on the back side. And since I, and since it was on a hill, half the right side of the house was below the grade, which means that we could be really loud without resulting in the cops getting called much. The garage was converted into a studio where a number of recordings were made, like the Planet of the Apes 45. What's the story with Party at Steve's House LP? Where does the noise and introduction actually come from? Uh, when was this recorded and why was it not released until the demise of the group? Furthermore, what are the origins of the tracks about Kingsman founders, Stooges producer, Don Gallucci's balls? And is it a coincidence that this track appears on the record with overdub crowd noise, much like a couple of the Kingsman records and who played saxophone on it? That is a lot of questions. The party at Steve's house LP was released as a condition of the second European tour. The songs were originally things that I wrote for another band project that Darren Raffaelli, Supercharger, and I were tossing around at the time. It was to be a Northwest frat type thing meets Alvin Cash and the registers. We were both got busy and then uh, and then a reason to sit down and record it came up. That's actually him on the bass on the album and me doubling on the sax. The crowd noises are from the Kingsman in person. One six fifty seven, and well, Dawn and the Good Times were always one of our big influences on the Mummies. Hence, the shout out to Mister Gallucci's nuts. Interesting. How were the Mummy outfits constructed, and how are they maintained? Were there multiple costumes per band member uh, to overcome the touring stink? I won't tell you how they were made, but I will say that we only had one set of costumes at any given time. We were too stupid and lazy to be more conscious about the whole thing. After each show, we'd cram all the wet and smelly costumes into a milk crate and load it on the mummy mobile, just like the rest of the gear. I can remember touring in Washington in the dead of winter and having to crawl into ice cold, soaking wet mummy costumes that smelt like asshole before going out on stage. A large reason why we didn't appeal to the ladies much. We used to carry around a can of Lysol disinfectant and we take turns spraying each other down after donning our costumes. If we had time to kill after sound checks, we'd hit up the nearest laundromat and throw them in a dryer. Of course, we were too cheap to wash them, mind you. Watching the costumes spin around in the dryer was pretty disgusting as they smelled as they'd smear gray grime all over the little round window. And yeah, we got sick an awful lot. Uh, you toured Europe after the band broke up. How was that for... How was that for post-breakup tension? A guy I borrowed a van off of in Europe reckoned the second Mummy's European tour, specifically in, I can't pronounce that, was for the money and didn't match up to that of 1992. Uh, is he a bearded Dutch van hire liar? Uh, that's just the sort of thing a bearded Dutchman would say. Honestly, we fought regularly when the band was active but mostly about stupid shit like fighting over fines at thrift stores. After we split, there was never really any tension, I think largely because we didn't see each other enough much. So when the opportunity came to do Europe, it was by mutual agreement. As for the second tour, yeah, it really sucked. But to be honest, neither of the European tours were about money. We didn't make anything from either tour uh, over covering our expenses. Touring for the Mummies was always about subsidizing travel, a way to visit new places for free, even before the split. Anyway, on our first European tour, 
I had insisted that Supercharger be brought along, and we only played like a dozen shows over the course of three weeks. So we had a lot of time to just fuck about and have a laugh. When we were back in 94, it was just us, and we played something like twice the number of shows we did a year before in about the same amount of time, which worked out to playing every night for two to three weeks straight. We were burnt out. I had become a big fat fuck, and the tour organizers definitely turned into a money-making venture of which they kept the profit. I mean, there is a reason why we never did another tour again. And that, and then right below it, and I love this, it says the mummies are touring Australia in March 2016. So even though this is from this third part of the interview is from 2017, it was posted in 2016, and the mummies did come back. Mummies went to Spain, they went to Australia. And I guess that answers my question as to why when they when they reunited, they were playing in a place like uh, Spain instead of playing here in the States. Okay. That's my mummy show. Um, Yeah, man, I love the mummies. Go seek them out. Go listen to them when you have a chance. If you want to start right with the mummies, go listen to the peel sessions again. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, Make sure to leave your skull in the live chat or down in the comments. Make sure you like this video. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Um, freaking, uh, what else is going to say? Uh, I might do some live streams at genre blast. Uh, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll do a driving stream. It all depends on a variety of factors. Uh, like I said, keep your peels, keep your bleh, peels, keep your eyes posted for Patreon shit. Um, the shirt giveaways that'll, that'll all of it's going to come together. The Blu-ray yakety schmackety peace, hair grease. Uh, I'll catch you on the flip side, everybody.